Good morning, church. I hope you are well. If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, we get to rejoin the series. Uh, in the book of Exodus, the series entitled Exodus, Our Response to the Intentional Love of God. And I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 8 with me. We'll be looking today at Exodus chapters 8 and 9. But in the beginning here, I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 24, as we consider today what it means to be stirred to trust in God to care for us. So I'll begin by reading Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 to 24, which goes as follows. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that in this moment, that you would stir our hearts to great faith. I pray that we would have all barriers removed and all pride set aside and there would be a softness to this very moment where we would be listeners and receivers and you would change us, work within us to help us to rest in you and to risk for you because we can trust that you care for us. So guide us now by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I tell you, Every now and then, it's just good to remember everyone's a person. I know that it's a, a life-shattering thought, but it does hit me sometimes. As in my community group, we have a text thread that goes back and forth and we share stories. And it was just helpful to remember. These are some of the stories that we shared. Stories of plumbing problems in our houses or mysterious leaks that you thought was a plumbing problem and then you thought it was a roof issue and then you have no clue what happened or where it's coming from but everything's resolved now issues of stories of little kids turning on faucets and overflowing sinks or tubs also tough days at work physical pains emotional pains where we are asking one another to pray for each other days where we are confident and days where we are really aware of our sin Days our marriages look strong and days when they don't look so strong. Days our kids look like they've been parented by professionals and days that our kids look like they've been parented by us. There's one word for all of this. It's mess. Our lives are messy. We're real people with messy, gritty lives. But as my community group leader loves to remind me, Jesus is in the mess. And mess is an opportunity where the Spirit of God creates anointings to work and to shape us and to change us. And all I want to know 
in the midst of the mess is to be reminded that there is a God, a God who is actively working to take care of us, that he protects and he provides and he strengthens and he makes up for our weaknesses. He defends and he secures and upholds. Today, we need to be stirred that we can know that our God takes care of us because he's the same God that exodused his people out of the land of Egypt. And so today, let's trust him in our mess. And let's look at the book of Exodus together. If you recall the last sermon that I preached in the book of Exodus, we saw a string of plagues that had been announced by Moses and Aaron, Aaron uh, upon the people of Egypt. And we went through plagues one, two, and three. And in those plagues, they were all the plagues are given as a judgment upon the Egyptians because of their worship of false gods and of their oppression of the people of God. And today we're going to look at four more plagues. We're going to look at the flies and death of livestock and boils and hail. But all of this meant to communicate what the first three did is that our God is making a case that he cannot be rivaled by any other God. He is in control of all things and he is worthy of all of our affection. And today, as we look at it, it is meant to remind us that he can be trusted to care for us. And the text today is going to answer, why can he be trusted? And there's three reasons. Why can he be trusted to care for us? Reason number one, because he has made us his chosen people. Reason number two, because he has power over us and over animals and sickness and weather and even over his enemies. And number three, we can trust him to care for us because he knows and controls the future. And so friends, let's dive in. Exodus chapter eight, verse 20 begins at the fourth plague. It is a plague where flies are sent upon the people of Egypt. And what we see here is that we can trust God to care for his people because he has made us his chosen people. Exodus chapter eight, verse 20. I want you to listen as I read it to the covenant language, this idea of possession that God will be our God and he will make the people of Israel his people. And we can then transfer that because we are his people by faith. All of the promises made to Israel are ours in Christ Jesus. And so listen to this covenant language when he says, these are my people. Exodus chapter eight, verse 20 says this, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. Several have said that the book of Exodus is the place where God begins and really forms a people for his name. And here there is no clearer Evidence of that is he creates a dividing line between his people and the people of Egypt. These people are mine, and these are the people that stand under my judgment. These are my treasured possession, and these are the rebellious ones. And so he's basically saying, Pharaoh, you have your people, and I have mine. Let's see who cares best for theirs. It's almost like a competition. It's decisive. And God is saying, I will win. It is a fact. It is definitive. And when he speaks, it is certain. God will care for his people in a way that shatters and obliterates any idea of care. 
made by anything else. So you look at Exodus 8:22, and Moses continues to speak, and he emphasizes this point by saying, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Goshen was, if you know the uh, Nile River in Egypt, it's the eastern part of that Nile Delta. And he is saying, on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. It could not be clearer. The Lord has a people and because they are his people, they need not fear. The Lord has a people, and because they are his people, they need not fear. And these people are called throughout the scriptures his chosen people. You see it explicitly, Deuteronomy 14, 2. But the question is this. Does the idea of being God's chosen people make you feel a sense of security? My fear is, is that it doesn't always. Why is that? Because when you think about choosing sometimes, like you say you're picking teams, sometimes you pick people built upon whether they're worthy or not. For example, we played a family game of Pictionary recently. And let me just let you in on an insight, give you a heads up, that if you're going to pick anyone in my family to be on your team, I want to encourage you, don't pick me. I am horrific at this drawing thing, and my family is actually pretty good. But there was a moment in our family game time where I was drawing a lizard, and I tell you, it was so bad. I know you've heard of writer's block. I had drawer's block. And while I was drawing, I just could not think of what to do next, and I started laughing so hard, the pen started trailing off of the board, and everybody was laughing, and it was a struggle to guess what I was drawing. You don't want me on your team. And then like if I'm the last one left and you pick me on your team, if some stranger comes in out of nowhere, you just want to then say, hey, Sean, why don't you sit over here and watch? I want this guy on my team. Okay. It's that bad. And so what, what you have there is this sense of sometimes our choosing is built upon worthiness. And you might have this idea that God will choose us until a better model comes along and then he will let go of us. It's not the case, as we will see in a second. But another reason why choosing might not sound so secure is that we choose all the time, but our generations, especially 21st century, we unchoose a lot. And I'm not just talking about trivial things like what type of cereal might you eat or what type of TV shows might you watch. We unchoose serious, large things. And one that grieves my heart more than anything is marriage. I'm not talking about this idea of when the betrayal or assault of adultery or desertion by an unbelieving spouse comes into a picture, I'm just talking about you don't feel like you love them anymore, and so you unchoose them. Or things have gotten hard, and so you seek to unchoose them and separate yourself from them. This paints a horrible picture to the rest of the world of what is meant to be a picture of security, of persistent love. And you just need to know, although we are imperfect pictures, when it comes to all of this choosing, when God says he chooses, it is a permanent thing. It is a forever thing. It is a secure thing. 
And we hear that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, when he tells us why he chose the people of Israel to be his people. And he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest people. But it is because the Lord loves you. So you follow. I didn't choose you because you were worthy. You were best on the team. I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. I chose you and set my love upon you because I love you. It's just my free love. That's why you're my people. And then listen to where Moses goes in Deuteronomy to reflect that God is a choosing God, securing a chosen people for his name. Listen to what he says. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Our God wants to use this Exodus narrative to show us that we are his chosen people and he has no buyer's remorse. He is not surprised by what he got in us. He doesn't say, oh, that's defective now. I want a new model. No, he freely, according to his sovereign knowledge, fully knowing what he's getting into, he chose us not because of our performance or we would be lost and not because of our righteousness, because we're wrong most of the time and we don't measure up. But he chose us freely by grace because of his love. And his love set upon us as a people, just like it was the people of Israel, were meant to be a contrast between those who are his people and those who are not his people. Exodus 8, verse 23, as the story continues, it shows us the greatest contrast when it is said, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And here's what's interesting. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word division is actually translated redemption. So it could read like this. Thus, I will put redemption between my people and your people. Hear this. The greatest contrast in being God's chosen people and not is that God's chosen people are a redeemed people, which means they have a redeemer. It is God, but we have a redeemer in Jesus Christ. And this is why as we read the narratives in the New Testament, they begin to show Jesus as the new and true Israel, as our redeemer. This is why Jesus as a child had to go into Egypt to be delivered out of Egypt because he is the new Israel exodus out of Egypt. This is why Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted and was faithful for 40 days and 40 nights. He was rewriting the script, so to speak, as the new and true Israel, because Israel for 40 years was disobedient in the wilderness. But now our God shows he is faithful. Jesus chose 12 apostles to mirror yet replace the 12 tribes of Israel. This is why Jesus spoke about his exodus at the Mount of Transfiguration to Moses and Elijah with Peter, James, and John present. And this is why Jesus suffered. He suffered for our sins as a spotless lamb, a Passover lamb, 
whose blood covers our hearts and delivers his people from the judgment of condemnation. Our Jesus is the new and true Israel. And he is the one that Israel could never be. He's the one that we could never be. Jesus is the redeemer who worked redemption for his people. And that means that we are a chosen, secured, redeemed, sanctified people being made like Jesus and cared for to the end. What is Exodus doing? It's laying the groundwork for God choosing a people and caring for them to the end. And so by faith, we are his people proving he chose us before the foundation of the world. And therefore, as we watch the Exodus unfold, we can trust God to care for his people. Why? Because he's chosen us. He's chosen us as his own. He has said, you are mine. The other reason we can trust him to take care of us as his people is because he is all powerful. He is all powerful. And here what we see in the book of Exodus said he is all powerful over his people. He is all powerful over animals and sickness and weather. And he is all powerful even over his enemies. Let's look at how he's all powerful over his people. He first teaches us that in a passage we've already read. Exodus chapter 8 verse 22 when he says this. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Understand what he's saying. Flies, you fly this far and no farther. And they obey. They obey. Here is what is meant to strike us as we read this thing that God can take whatever comes and he can stop it. It means that nothing befalls us. But what our God allows, permits, or purposes, he is always working for our good. He is always present. And this is what the Exodus is teaching us. I am with you, he says. I am working for you, and I am powerfully in control. If the first point was, was meant to bolster our confidence that he cares for us by showing us his remarkable goodness and mercy, this point is showing that we can trust his care because of his remarkable power. And we not only see it, this remarkable power displayed in Exodus 8.22, but we see it in the later plagues as well. After he sends the flies and they, quote, ruin all the land of Egypt, Moses prays to let up the swarms of flies. But Pharaoh still hardens his heart and doesn't let the people go. So we see in chapter 9, and we read these verses, chapter 9, verses 2 to 6. It says, For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will, hear this, make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the next day, the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And yet what we see is Pharaoh's heart was hard and he didn't let the people go. You see, he's making this distinction. He's protecting his people. 
You see it again in Exodus 9-11 when the plague of the boils comes. And the boils, what happens is Moses reaches into a kiln and he throws up the soot and remarkably he's protected. But the magicians of Egypt, and it says all the Egyptians, not the Israelites, were covered in painful sores. And then you see it again in the seventh plague when hail comes upon the people in Exodus 9.26. And it says only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. He says, weather go this far and no farther. He is protecting his people. He's being a fence for them. And he can protect us or he can inflict us. But make no mistake about it. Whatever befalls us, befalls us as his chosen people. And it is a mercy. Psalm 23 verse 6 tells us that. Only goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Even the greatest pains are a mercy to make us more like Jesus, which is our greatest joy when we are like him. And the text goes on to tell us he put a division, remember, a redemption between his people and Egypt to show Israel and the nations that God cares for his people in a way that no other God can. And so he is showing us his power that we might rest secure in that power. But he's not only showing us his power over his people to protect his people. He is showing his power over all animals and sickness and weather. After the plague of the flies comes, we see the plague of killing livestock. And this is the first plague where the primary judgment is death. And what we see, we see it as death for livestock. That is defined in Exodus 9.3 as those in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So this plague is not only painful because they're watching all of these animals die, but as John Calvin stated, it was going to affect them for years because this was their economic livelihood. This was transportation. This was how they able to make crops and rose hoed. And it would be like taking all of our money and all of our possessions and throwing it out in the middle of a field and we having to sit there and watch it burn. This was their way of living that was being taken. And Exodus 9 verse 6 says it wasn't just some of the livestock. It was all of their livestock. And we don't know how it happened. Did God send a virus that came and so they had to watch these animals suffer slowly? Or did he just make the heart stop? We don't know, but this is what we do know. God causes hearts to beat and hearts to stop. And he causes viruses to go and viruses to stop. What is meant to be clear is that our God was in control of these animals and their lives. And yet Pharaoh stayed hard. And so without warning, plague six comes and God brings boils, flies, livestock, now the boils. And our God now is showing his power over sickness. And as I said earlier, Moses throws that soot in the air and the boils go out all over the people. So now you have 
livestock that are dead and boils covering the people of Egypt, these painful sores, and yet Pharaoh's heart stays hard. What you are seeing is these plagues of judgment, these signs of God's judgment, they are increasing in intensity. And so what comes next is God shows that he's in control over the weather patterns. That what happens in the weather is not meant to be attributed to mother nature, but to God. It's where Job tells us in Job 37, it says, by the breath of God, ice is given. It tells us that he swirls the winds around and around and lightning bolts are at his command. So we see here that he has power over hail and storms as Exodus 9.25 tells us, and that hail struck down everything that was in the field and in all the land of Egypt, man and beast and plant and tree. And as he brings the hail upon the land of Egypt, he says, hail, go this far, but don't go into the land of Goshen because that's where my people dwell and I will protect them. Make no mistake, the actions of God here are actions of just wrath. Just wrath by a just God upon a wicked and unjust people. But it is also remarkable to see God's patience and graciousness that he keeps offering Pharaoh and the Egyptians opportunities to turn. And yet, despite God's graciousness, Pharaoh continues not to relent. He will not repent. He will not turn long term. He does not turn to the living God. And so Exodus 9 verse 16 tells us, explains that all of this is happening so that God would show the power of his name and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he's doing it. He's showing his power to protect his people. He's showing his power over animals and over sickness and over weather patterns. And he's showing his power over the very enemies of God themselves the Egyptians. Exodus 9 tells us what characterized these Egyptians as the enemies of God. Exodus 9, 17 says, they exalted themselves against my people. So there was self-exaltation and there was oppression of God's people. Exodus 9, verse 20 says that they did not pay attention to the word of the Lord. Exodus 9, 30 says they did not fear God. These are things that are characteristic of the enemies of God. And I just have to insert here a brief reminder, but a clear reminder that remember, Christians who disagree with you and I are not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters. They've been bought with the blood of Jesus. They are protected and cared for and loved by him. The enemies of God are different. There are people characterized by arrogance, by a belief that they are untouchable, by a desire for revenge to show off their power. They resist God, or sometimes they think they're acting for God, but they are deceived. They work against God and his people. And when enemies attack, the book of Exodus shows us that God is more powerful than any resistance more secure than any stronghold, more powerful than any virus or weather system, so you and I can trust him. 
You and I can trust him to take care of us because we are not only chosen and he is not only all powerful, but he also knows and controls our future. But before we run to the third one, how in the world do we respond to this idea that God is all powerful over all things? Well, one verse came to my mind, Philippians chapter one, verses 27 to 28, when God tells us how we should respond to the fact that he is all powerful. The scriptures say this, the primary point of Philippians found right here in verse chapter one, verse 27 and 28, it says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now you can't see it here, but there's a word play that's happening there. He's basically saying, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's that mean? Well, he tells us later in chapter three that our citizenship is in heaven. And so he's telling a people who are so confident in their Roman citizenship that you're a citizen of another place. You're a citizen of my kingdom and let your life reflect that you're a citizen there. Let it reflect that your life is worthy of the gospel of God. And so he says, so that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel to declare that your citizenship is in heaven? It is that we are of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in one spirit. And that we aren't frightened by our enemies because our unity, it says in the text, is a clear sign to our enemies of their destruction, but of our salvation. Our life reflecting the characteristics of our citizenship in heaven is a clear sign to our enemies of their destruction, but of our salvation. And so may we see his power over all things. And may we respond by walking in love, walking in unity, living lives contrasted with the enemies of God, not afraid, but gospeling in love. Finally, we can trust that God cares for us as his people because he knows and controls the future. Exodus chapter nine, verse 11 and 12 tell us and begin to show us a pattern that has been all throughout these chapters. Listen to this. Exodus 9, 11 says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them. And here's what you need to he, uh, read. As the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now here, the narrator is referring to words that he had given, that God had given Moses back in Exodus chapter four, verse 21. And back in Exodus chapter four, verse 21, God is telling Moses what's going to happen before it happens so that Moses and the people of Israel would trust that he is God. It is this sense that God knows and controls the future. And to that degree is the degree to which you can trust him with your very life. And so what happens in these narratives is that that phrase, as the Lord had spoken to Moses, pops up all over the place. Let me just give you some of them. Exodus chapter seven, verse three. 
Exodus chapter 7, verse 13. Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. In this passage, Exodus chapter 9, verse 11. And then following this passage, passage Exodus chapter 9, verse 35. All of them tell us that these things were happening as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God knew it. God's in control of it. And we should trust him. And to add to that argument, we also see and read these kind of words. We read this in the plague of the flies in Exodus 8 verses 23 and 24. He says, tomorrow this sign will happen. And the Lord did so. <laughs> Why didn't he just do it on that day? Because he wants it to be clear. I know what's going to happen before it happens and I'm in control of it and I can do it. And that's why you read in Exodus 9, 5 to 6, it says, And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord will do this thing. And all the livestock of the Egyptians died, and not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. God did what he said he was going to do. The Lord did this thing. And so the author is drilling down. He is drilling down into our thick skull and our hard and dull hearts at times by repeating these phrases so that we would know God does what he does. He does what he says he will do for the glory of his name. And he does it because he knows and controls the future. And this is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 46 verse 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. What makes him God? He goes on to say, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So what is our stance as we look at the future? God wants it to be a sense of trust and confidence because he knows and controls the future. But if you're like me, what is our stance towards the future? Fear, worry, obsession. Many times we have a preoccupation with the future. What will happen next? Will I get married? How will the tension be resolved? Will I get this job? What will school next year look like? What will be the answer to my financial struggles? Will I die early? Will I have good health and live long? Should I relocate or stay? What should I do about my kid's school? Or will life ever go back to the way it was? And these are just the tip of the iceberg with how many questions we can ask ourselves to show how we fixate on the future. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something states this, our fascination with the future often portrays our lack of trust in God's promises and provision. We don't just want his word that he'll be with us. We want him to show us the end from the beginning and prove to us that he can be trusted. We want to know tomorrow will, well, what tomorrow will bring instead of being content with simple obedience on the journey. And so we obsess about the future and we get anxious because anxiety after all, and listen to this, is simply living out the future before it gets here. Now, let's chew on that for a minute. You know that obsessive thinking that plays out the seemingly 
endless scenarios of how things will be or how things could be. It's exhausting. And the book of Exodus is meant to show us our God who controls and knows the future so that we don't have to be exhausted trying to figure it out, but we can live in simple obedience and trust him. The invitation is to gaze at the God of Exodus who knows and controls the future. The invitation is to rest and to risk. Rest. We get so fearful and we can't find rest because we believe we must create our future. It's all resting in our hands or we believe in moments of weakness that God doesn't have our future in his hands. We might think he's got our future five years from now in his hands, but we struggle to believe that he has it five minutes from now. This declaration in the book of Exodus is to show us he has our future, all of it, all the time. And so we can rest and not fear. Many times we long to see more of the future, as Kevin DeYoung said, almost as a test of will God really come through? But the test has already been passed. The cross shows us he passes the test. But the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and especially right here in the book of Exodus shows us that our God can be trusted. He keeps his word and he knows the future. The book of Exodus screams to us that he knows and controls the future. So we should allow Israel's season of suffering and fear and doubt and deliverance to be kind of sight for us that God can be trusted with what we cannot see. Don't forget, the Christian walk is fundamentally a walk of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. We do not need to see our future. It would probably make us cry and hole up just because we can't control all of the variables. But what we know is our God has the future in his hands. And not only can we then rest in our God, but we can look at the God of the Exodus and allow that to, to drive us to be confident and bold that our God can be trusted. And so not only do we rest, but we risk. We risk. When the future is not a risk to God, we can risk. As Kevin DeYoung says, we can risk because God does not. Let's hit rewind on the timeline. May 2000. Passion conferences in Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee. John Piper gets up to speak in a sermon that will move generations. This week was the 20th anniversary of that message where God moved mightily and called a generation of men and women to live their lives, not for the American dream, the house, the car, the money, the land, or famously, as he put it, for the shell collection of retirement. But we are to live our lives for the advance of his name where you are. And to be a part of his global mission to see all peoples of the earth praise him. And what you began to see was nothing short of remarkable. 
You saw teenagers get out from behind their screens to invest their lives in his kingdom, choosing careers that could be leveraged among the nations or for the gospel where they were. You saw people going overseas to live and to work or to plant churches or to gospel unreached people groups. There was a total re-engineering of how people looked at their lives and the purpose of their lives. It shifted from comfort now to treasure later. And when our God has the future, when it is so secure in his sovereign arms, when you know you are chosen and he is all powerful and all authority in heaven and on earth is his, then we are free, free to go, free to make disciples, free to risk, free to rest in him. And that takes steps, steps of faith, steps of faith to share Christ with those in this city. Or to consider leveraging your summers for strategic nations reaching missions. Or to spend your money and energy placing yourselves among the poor and the vulnerable so that they too can know Christ. Or consider studying abroad for the sake of gospel advance. Or you could consider being sent to make disciples in less reached areas. No matter what it is, God's protection of his people, his choosing us before the foundation of the earth, his power over all things are meant to give us a freedom a freedom to trust so much in his care for us that we know that we know nothing will befall us, but not from the hand of God. Only goodness and mercy will be done to us and we can rest in his love and we can give away his love in risk oriented obedience. And we can do that for the sake of his name. May we trust that our God cares for us because we are his people chosen before the foundation of the earth. He has power over all things and he knows and controls the future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please anchor our feet in these rock solid, true realities about you. The earth is, the, is yours and everything in it. And may it lead us to live lives of rest and trust in you and risk-taking, sacrificial love giving away for the glory of your name. Send us out, we pray, as a unified army of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.